Well, good morning. Glad to see everybody this morning. I hope you got a copy of God's Word with you and at least two things, but right now we're looking at this is information and this is sermon notes. Back in front you should have all that to help you follow along with us. We are a church that preaches expositionally through books of the Bible and we've been working through 2 Peter and so we're we're at 2 Peter 1 and we're in verse 12 today. So we're going to be looking at verse 12 through verses 21. So as you find your place, I did just want to announce here that you have experienced the last week as Pastor Micah as a single worship leader. Our worship pastor, he's, they're getting married next week, and so after the honeymoon, they'll come back, and then you'll experience him as a married worship pastor. So, so just to celebrate with them, I wanted to mention that, congratulate them now and, and later. Second Peter, we've been looking at the foundations for a lasting faith, and Peter is just getting sort of wound up here. He's just getting in now, this week, to get into the heart of his letter. So stand with us in honor of God's word. This, brothers and sisters, is probably one of the clearest texts in Scripture of the inspiration of God's word. And so we remind ourselves this morning is that when God's word speaks, God speaks. And so God tells us this morning in 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this from the very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in the darkness, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, as now we have read your words to us. Lord, this is the message that you want your people to hear this morning. And so, Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us clarity? Would you calm our minds and, Lord, even our nerves, our emotions? For, Lord, we have lived this week in relationship to people who are just as broken and messed up as us. And so, Lord, we need your grace right now. We need your wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit to help us, Lord, so would you. Lord, we thank you that if we pray in your will, you will answer our prayers. 
Jesus' name, you can be seated. So how important is the return of Christ to you? How much does it play into your every day? How much do you think about it? Does it it affect what you do and what you don't do? Does it affect your Christ-likeness? Does it affect your time with the Lord? What, What part does it play in your life? Think about this. In context this morning, Peter knew that his death was imminent, that he, it wasn't long, that he, he wasn't going to be here much longer. And think about what you would do. What would you write if you were, if you, the only way you could communicate a letter to people that you loved and you knew your death was imminent and you had to write a letter, what would you say? What would be the emotion? What would be the urgency that was in here when you wrote that letter? As you think about that, this is what Peter is doing. And so we ask the question, why would Peter write about false teachers and and especially in light of the return of Christ? Why didn't he write about Christ's atonement work or the resurrection or, or any number of other things he could have wrote about? He wrote with this urgency because of the false teachers and what they were doing to God's people. This was important to him. There was, for him, there was nothing more important than for God's people to be growing in Christ. And so remember, these false teachers were attacking the second coming. And so this is precisely why he writes the letter. Remember, they were saying, since Christ is not coming, there is no judgment. And if there is no coming and no judgment, then what what does it really matter how we live? Let's just sin and let grace abound. Paul wrote of this kind of mindset that was alive and well today as it was then. Turn with me to Acts 3. I want, you to, I want you to see something as we get started this morning. But as you turn there, I want to say something clearly this morning. That to disbelieve the literal visible return of Jesus Christ is to step outside of Orthodox Christianity. It is... Not just one thing we believe. It is essential to the gospel that we proclaim. It is essential to the gospel that we believe. And I want you to see that here in Acts 3 verse 19. This is Peter preaching. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. I ask you, I ask you, just look at the text for a minute. What what message would he have if you take out the return of Christ? You would have basically verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins be blotted out. You've got nothing else here. The times are refreshing. The Christ being sent, appointed for you, and the restoring of all things. These things don't not going to happen. And any refreshing that God promises you now is with the intentions of you thinking about what it means to be refreshed then. And so, if Christ does not return, nothing else really matters. And you don't really have a gospel. And so this is important. It's important to Peter. And so he lays down an argument this morning for the reliability of God's word, the truth. The word of God in light of the return of Christ. And he's going to lay it down with two primary arguments. The apostolic witness 
and the reliability of the prophetic scriptures, that both are reliable. And as we'll see, both come from God. So he's still in the introduction in verses 12 to 15 as we remember the significance of biblical truth. And if you're taking notes, right over the top of significance, necessity. I wish I would have changed that word. Necessity is a better word. Remember the necessity of biblical truth. And so just look at verses 12 to 15. Three times in this text, he, he talks about remembering. Verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you. Verse 13, to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, I want you to be able at any time to recall these things. Important, what is he saying? We need, we, we need the truth repeated to us, don't we? And especially in light, remember what's happening. The false teachers were there. They were among them. They were using the grace card that says, since God's grace is enough, then it's an excuse to live immoral. And so they said, no, no, you need truth reminded to you. And so why is that important? The gospel truth sustains our godliness. Look at verse 12. What are these qualities? You see these that it says in here? These qualities, we need to be reminded because, you know, we, we work and we sleep, we forget where we've been. So let's be reminded of what these qualities are. Verses 5 to 8. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Remember what we said, since God has saved you, He's given you the gift of faith. Now you have believed, now you get to share in the divine nature. Now you make every effort to supplement these things. These qualities should be in your life and should be growing as you grow towards Christ-like maturity. These are what He's talking about. You need to be reminded of these things. Look at verse 12. He said, look at the end of verse 12. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, he said, I've already told you about this. You know this and this is already established. In other words, this is already a part of your life. But what? You need to be reminded. You see, Peter knew something about stumbling, didn't he? He knew that you could know and yet you could still stumble. So the point here in verse 12 is that spiritual truth sustains a godliness that's already present and growing in your life. You cannot live on yesterday's work. You must get up and pursue. Make every effort. That's what he's saying. I want you to see this. Romans 12. Romans 12 verse 2. I just want you to illustrate what he's talking about. Romans 12 verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now look with me at something here. It says, do not be conformed. That's present conformed. It's present imperative. That means that is a command for you to do right now. But be transformed. You see the word transformed? That's present passive imperative. That means this must be presently 
happening in your life right now, but you're not doing it. It's happening to you. Passive is what's being done to you. So look at this. This is, this is, this is amazing. So conform, present imperative. You're doing it right now. Transform, present, passive. It's being done to you right now. Look at how. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You see the, you see the words, by testing, may discern. One Greek word. It is present, active. This is presently, actively what you're doing. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying right now, you are presently, actively not being conformed to the world. You're doing that. And right now, you must presently, you must be actively discerning in God's Word what is His will. And when you do those things, the Holy Spirit transforms you. This is good. This is the Bible. This is why we we need to be reminded of that this morning. God's gospel truth is necessary because it sustains our godliness and because it stimulates our passion. Verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And so he talks about in verse 14, since you know that putting off my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus has told me. And so he paints this picture that it's not going to be long, brothers and sisters, that I'm going to take and he uses a picture of of either a tent or even clothing. I'm going to take these clothing off. I'm not going to be here, so my time is short. So this is important. But what's important to him is verse 13. I'm here. I'm writing this to stir you up. What does that mean? It means to arouse. It means to provoke. He wants to persuasively stimulate these believers to consider and to... Pursue God in a fresh and a new way. What we, we sang last week, sing a new song. Sing a new song. Brothers and sisters, we need each other to stir each other's up, to stir our passions. This is why we don't forsake coming together with each other, why we don't forsake our times within our growth groups. This is urgent. Peter's not pointing out the brevity of his life, though it's short. He's pointing out the urgency of his message. He says, you need to be reminded Because it sustains your growing faith. It stimulates you and it strengthens your readiness. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Verse 15 is that word again that we've looked at a couple times already. It's the one Greek word, spude. It means urgency. This is zeal. This is is my passion. I'm going to make every effort with all that is in me, to make sure that you don't forget. I want you to pursue. I want you to be able to mature. I want you to any time to be able to crawl these things. So he's talking about more than just reminding. Peter is referring to a permanent written reminder. Most likely the Gospel of Mark, of which he was the main contributor. I just want to throw this out here because it's just amazing as you begin to study into the reliability of Scripture. Does everyone know about the caves in Qumran of the scrolls that were found? In cave number 7, fragments of the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 verses 52 and 53 were discovered. Along in that same cave was other fragments containing six words. Almost all people have agreed 
that that was 2 Peter 1, verse 15. Now listen to me. That cave was sealed up at AD 68 for the Romans came in. 35 years after the resurrection, the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, just exactly what he said, I'm going to make every effort, was accomplished. And the Gospel of Mark was written down for a reminder and had been distributed. It's awesome. It's important. Peter wants them to live, to have, to pull up, be able to open up God's word, to live with a gospel consciousness. This is what, how we deflect error and how we pursue what is right by constantly be reminded of it. Why is this? That though we can sometimes regularly read God's word, and if I ask you right now, did Jesus die for my sins? We would all say what? Absolutely, he died for my sins. Then, brothers and sisters, why in our this week have we lived under the shame and guilt of our past sins? You see the problem? We say that Jesus died and he covered my sins, and that yet practically I live in my life under the shame and guilt of those sins. I need to be reminded this morning. I need to be reminded at that moment that Christ died and biblical forgiveness never brings that sin up to you again. That's good news. And we need to be reminded of that. That's why we need to be stirring each other up. When you see a believer rolling around in their yesterdays, you don't need to remind them of how good they are. You need to remind them of how good Jesus is. He forgives you and He doesn't make you roll around in it after He does it. That's the beauty of reminding So Peter's passion here, don't miss it, is that living a godly life is optional only if heaven is not in view. But if heaven is our destiny, godliness will be our passion. And the greater it is in our view, the more Christ-like we will want to be. That's simply what Christ produces in our life. And so now he comes to the main argument in 2 Peter 1.11. Look at it. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see is verses 16 to 21 is an unpacking of verse 11. Because this is what they're disputing. The false teachers are saying, there's no second coming. He's saying, listen, you need to understand and we need to understand. Our eschatology is important because what we are saying is that Jesus will come and He's going to set up His eternal kingdom. It's important. It's not optional. And so the gospel truth that He's defending is the return of Christ. His kingdom reign. He's going to establish it. And we know it by two ways. So what He's going to lay out first is we need to remember God's Word was spoken to the apostles. The apostolic witness. And the witness sits in a backdrop. It sets in the backdrop of the transfiguration. So let's go to it. Let's remind ourselves of the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8. This is the backdrop of the apostolic witness. Verse 17, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became 
white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 5, And as he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This account is recorded in all the three Gospels. Look at verse 2. We see Christ is transfigured. He's bright. He's shining. We see this glory that is on Him and around Him. This reminds us of of up on Mount Sinai when Moses came down. He'd been talking to God and His face was shining like the sun. He had to put a veil in front of Him. This is the backdrop that He then in verse 16 launches into His argument. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So He's defending Himself against the false teacher's claim. What were they claiming? That these apostles were just making this up. These are just myths. This is not real. They would have said, Jonah didn't really happen. It's a story. I'm not... Being critical here, but I am a little bit. The Bible's not veggie tales. It's not a, a bunch of little programs that's devoid of the gospel that teaches us how to be nice people, how to share, and how to not be stingy. No, he's saying, no, you gotta understand. This is not a myth. We didn't make this up. We were there. We saw his power. Look at that word power and coming. May known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is alluding, and I wish we had time this morning, we don't, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, read that later. It's the clearest picture of the coming of the Son of Man to set up His kingdom. This is what they're, He's going to pull to here in a little bit, but He says this, We've made known to you the dunamis and the parousia, the power and the coming. These things in Scripture are connected. But what is He pointing to, this backdrop? Peter's comparing the transfiguration. He's connecting these two events. The transfiguration is pointing towards the second coming. The transfiguration is a theophany that manifests the reality of God's coming kingdom. It both represents it, and listen, it anticipates it. That's why he's presenting it here. He said, listen, here's the point. We saw it. We heard it. We were there. We're not making this up. Listen, I wasn't by myself. That's what Peter's saying. I'm not by myself. 1 John 1. What did John... How did John record all of this that he experienced in the life of Christ? 1 John 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's saying the same thing. Verse 17, back in 2 Peter. For we received honor, for, he, for when he received honor and glory from the Father. So listen, he's, say, he's not saying that Jesus was simply reflecting honor and glory from the Father. He said he received it. 
This is going to Jesus' exalted status. He received honor. He received glory. And listen, that's not all. God spoke. We were there. Verse 17. We received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He said, God spoke. And listen, you see what He connects? He calls God the Father the majestic glory. God spoke. What did He say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What is He saying? Brothers and sisters, turn with me to Psalms 2 verse 6. This is more and it is both an affirmation and affection of a father to his son, but it's more. Psalms 2, verses 6 and 7, God to the Messianic King proclaims in Psalms 2 and verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's not done. And then he says, In whom I am well pleased. So turn over to you, right to the book of Isaiah verse 42 where it's talking about the Messiah is also going to be our suffering servant. And in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, God's word just says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and in whom my soul delights. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Was not simply, though it was a declaration of his affirmation and his affection, he is saying, this is my son, and this is your Messiah, this is your king, listen to him. It says in verse 18, back in 2 Peter, we were with him on the holy mountain. We saw God's glory and power, and we heard God. God spoke. So Peter's point here is to show his authoritative knowledge of the historical Jesus. And now he's going to take that authoritative knowledge and he's going to stress the solidarity between the Old Testament message and the apostolic message. I'm going to put them together. So our faith, brothers and sisters, is not rooted in fairy tales, but an historical fact from eyewitness testimony. But never forget, God is the origin and the source of all Scripture. So verse 19, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as a light shining in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And so now he lays, now he's laid the apostolic witness down. Now he lays down Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. And he says, we have it more fully confirmed. He's doing something with this argument. Let the argument build. But he lays out at least three realities of Scripture from this understanding of the prophetic word. First is Scripture is superior to personal experience. It's superior to personal experience. Verse 19 says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Scripture is more fully confirmed than even eyewitness testimony that is given. Many of us would see eyewitness testimony as the highest proof. They would in that day. I know it. Why? Because I experienced it. That's why this is important to get this right this morning. To understand God's word. 
Because do you remember how could we forget 9-11? And I tell you, that five minutes before 9-11 and seconds before as they flew those planes into their building, they had an experience. And it was real. They had an experience and it was powerful. Probably most like none of us had ever experienced five seconds before they run those planes into those buildings. And then five seconds after they realized they were deceived. It's important to understand that Scripture is superior to personal experience. For the apostles and for Jesus, the most powerful argument of the authenticity of Christianity was the Old Testament prophecies. It was the Old Testament Scripture. And and if you read Christ, He always, when He wanted to to finish the argument, what would He do? Thus it is written. What was He doing? He's saying, devil, most religious people in in, in that day, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? Thus it is written. We must affirm what Jesus affirms, and Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Scripture. This is what he's using. He said, if you don't believe me, go to Scripture. What he's saying is, take my testimony and lay it beside God's Word. And what you will see is solidarity. It's fidelity. Check it out. Scripture is superior to personal experience. Scripture is superior because its origin is supernatural. In other words, Scripture has a divine source. That is God. So listen to his argument. So now he's, he's going to, to marry both the apostolic witness and the prophetic word. Here's what he's saying. The, the same God that spoke on the mountain spoke to the prophets. And we heard him. And you'd do well to pay attention to it. Scripture is authoritative. Why? Verse 21. Because no prophecy comes through the will of man. This is talking about origin. He's saying Scripture didn't originate. It wasn't produced by man. What was he say? In other words, he said, this is, the prophets wasn't giving you their ideas. They wasn't recording their perspectives. They wasn't making up a story about a flood or a fish and then ascribing some kind of moral truth to it. They were telling you what God said. Its origin is God. And so this raises up our own interpretation of Scripture when we understand that the originator of God's Word is God. Therefore, we have no right to change it and we have no right to neglect it. It didn't come through the will of man. Verse 21, it come from God, and it's administered by the Holy Spirit. God is the origin. He is the source. And you see, turn with me to Jeremiah. That's not true of the false prophets. It's not true. Jeremiah 23, 16 tells us a little bit of what's going on. See, they had false prophets back in the Old Testament days, too. As the prophets were speaking truth, there was always false prophets speaking lies. What were their motivation? What were their intentions? Look at it. It's true today. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. Listen. 
They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster will come on you. Do you see what they're doing? You see the heart. False teachers twist Scripture to fit their own agenda. But look what they're doing more, more severely. Now you're going to see why Peter is so, is so ripped out of source over these false teachers. They simply scratch the ears of the godless. They scratch their ears to the hard-hearted people who will not obey God and, and says, as long as you feel good about yourself and you're making the world better than when you left it, God loves you. So just be comfortable as you go to hell. Isn't that, this is what the false teachers did in the prophet's day. And listen, you hadn't seen nothing yet. Wait till you hit chapter 2. But before we hit chapter 2, brothers and sisters, let us pause and ask ourselves the question, how do I twist scripture to fit me? How do I twist theology? How do I twist doctrine? How do I neglect theology and doctrine? Because I don't think it applies to my life. Do we read devotionals that read a passage out of context, applies it to your life, and you go about your day? How many of us have went into a growth group or a Sunday school class or a life group or whatever, and someone reads a passage of Scripture and says, what do you think about it? Do I announce the text? Have you ever been to a message? Somebody announces the text, and about halfway through, you're sitting there going, don't really know where that text was read, where he's going with that. What does this do, brothers? This muffles the voice of God and puts words in his mouth. We must deal with ourselves. What is Peter saying? God's word is enough. Read the Bible. He says, Scripture is enough. If you don't believe what I'm saying, go to Scripture. The Scripture is superior to personal experience. Scripture is superior because its origin is from God. It's supernatural. Yet, yes, Scripture was transmitted through human instruments. In other words, through people. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is breathed out by God. And yet, he used men. He says these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's another word picture. That they were like ships and they, they lifted their sails and the Holy Spirit blew their sails where he wanted them to go. God directed them what he, where they wanted them to go, what he wanted them to say. But look at what it says. They recorded. Men spoke from God, not about God. Spoke from God. Carried by the Holy Spirit. We call this, it's on the screen, verbal plenary inspiration. The Holy Spirit guided the authors in the original manuscripts, even in their choices, expressions, while preserving their own personalities in its transmission. In other words, you can read Peter and know a little bit about Peter. You can read Paul's letters and get a feel. Man, this dude don't play around. He gets to business. You can understand that. At the same time, 
The word verbal plenary means all the words. What are we saying this morning? Clearly, we stand on this. We're having Discover Parkwood after church. And here's what we always say. We stand at every single word of Scripture is inspired. Every word. Every word. This is what we're saying. It's what Peter's saying. And yet, it is not a mechanical dictation, but an active cooperation between man and God. That is amazing. Therefore, Scripture in its original manuscripts is perfect and without error. It's the message God wants His people to receive. And so, Paul's hope you're in a growth group. Here's what a growth group, here's what I want you to discuss. One of the things I want you to talk about in your growth group is, well, Stephen, ask your growth group teacher this. I, I'm, I'm telling you to. Say, well, if we don't have the original letter from Peter, how do we know that it's reliable? Ask your questions. Talk about that in growth group. We're not talking about that here. So, how should we respond to the apostolic witness and the prophetic witness of Scripture? He's saying our response should be submission. Submission to Scripture. Listen, especially in view of Christ's return. Remember, this is the whole point he's laying out this argument. Christ will return because the prophets foretold it and Jesus proclaimed it. And both we received from God. So we submit to it. God's Word doesn't give you all you want. It is not a dictionary where you look in the back to see what you need today. It is a book you, you study and you want to know because it has a message that God wants to give you. So obeying God's Word is just not a good thing. It's the right thing. Whether it brings you any benefit in this life or not, it's right not because it gives you something, because it's truth. Because it reveals Christ, but oh, the benefit it brings. Verse 19 says, as a lamp shining, look at the end of verse 19, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does he say in Psalms 119? The whole chapter is about how much he loves God's Word. Psalms 119 105 says, Your Word is what? It is a lamp unto my feet. And a what? A light to my path. This is the benefit it brings you. It brings you light. It lights up a dark, the dark places so we can see what needs to be cleaned. And here's what the heretics brought in to the body of Christ, they bring in darkness. They bring in apathy. They bring in we don't care and we don't want to know. And so God gives us a light. It is His Word. And it is the only way. Don't you work with people. Can't you see them? Can't you see them? They're groping around in darkness. And we have light. How can we neglect it? It says, use your light. Light up the darkness. But listen to me today. If you light up the darkness, don't expect the darkness to thank you. No, no. It might attack you. Until. How long? Until Christ returns. And when He returns, there will be no darkness. He will return in His brilliance and His glory. That picture of the transfiguration in all its fullness. 
what we long for, isn't it? As believers, we look forward to our first John 3, 2 moment. To when we will know as we are known, we shall see Him as He is. Until then, today, we cooperate with the work of the Spirit by pursuing God's Word in our life to know Him, to make Him known, and to be conformed in His image until He comes. So what's at stake? What's at stake in believing and obeying God's Word today? Matthew 6, verse 9. Matthew 6, verse 9. We know this as the model prayer, the prayer that Jesus teaches us how we should pray to Him. Verse 9 says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what's at stake to your believing and obeying this morning? The honor of God is at stake. That's what's at stake. That's why we want our children to know God. We don't want them to get big degrees and make lots of money. We want them to know God. Why? Because His honor is at stake. We long for His kingdom to come so that His will will be done, so He will be obeyed here like He is there. And that begins with me. This isn't merely about some moral code. And I'm sorry if you grew up in a church that taught you the Bible is just a moral code. And that it is. It's not just a foundation that we live by, though it is. This tells us what is necessary to honor our God. In anyone who Christ has purchased, that is our passion. God's Word is how we know Him. We must not neglect it. We must not misuse it. We must pursue it. We must cling to it. 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1.19 I just want you to think about these words. It says, until. Cling to it until the day dawns and the morning star. Notice that word. Rises in your hearts. So Scripture is a light. And we... Carry that torch until He comes. Christ's return. Romans 13, 12. What does this look like? It's on the screen. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us, let us now, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verse 2. Speaking of our coming King says, but for you who fear my name, the sun, notice how he spells that, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. Verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. He, listen, Christ will return. He will return. Turn with me to the last book in your Bible and the last page in that book. Revelations 22, verse 16. I just want you to... This, this needs to hit you, brothers and sisters. As you look, who have you been given the privilege of reading? Who's speaking? 
But Christ gives us a plea. He gives us a warning. He gives us a promise. And then we see John's response. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Then he gives us a plea. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And then he issues a warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add. To him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now he gives us a promise. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. So, brothers and sisters, May we say with John at the end of this book, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So God, we have heard Your Word. We have been reminded that You revealed Yourself to men. And they watched You live And they watched you die. And they saw your son be resurrected. Of this they were witnesses. And they declared it. And they wrote it down for us. So Lord, we thank you for your word that you have preserved and kept for yourself. From Genesis to Revelation. That it is sure. That it is necessary. That it is clear. That we don't deserve it. And yet we've been given it. So Lord I pray for your people. For a passion and a zeal to know you. And that Lord you have told us. That the only way we might know you. Is to know your word. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for us. And now as we think about the reality. One day. You will come for your people. One day you will come for them. And you will come with them. And you will make all things right. We long for that day. When we will not sin against you anymore. That we will surround the throne in our glorified bodies and sing the praises of your name. But Lord, until then, we need you. We need you for us. We need you for our kids. We need you for this, our world. Lord, we, we go to work on 
Monday or Tuesday to a dark place with people who cannot see. And you have given us the torch. Oh Lord, we thank you. And now, Lord, we respond. We respond to your glory, to your power, to your honor, to your goodness, to your salvation, to your promise. And we stand to our feet and we worship your name because you and you only are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name. Stand with us. Let's worship the King.